that's another thing that's important. It's just perspective. Because when you're doing lending, the vast majority of your situations work out. And so you need to experience right. what the cycle where things have gone wrong to understand just how important those protections are that you're putting in the documentation. Just how important it is that you negotiate for that extra term that provides that additional layer of protection for your investors. You're about to hear my conversation with David Ross from Northleaf Capital. We talk about all things private credit, including what he looks for in private businesses, how he thinks about pricing deals, and finally, we get his recommendations on books, favorite places to travel, and what he's most looking forward to do after COVID. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur and I'm delighted to be here with David Ross. David is Managing Director of Private Credit at Northleaf Capital. That's a firm that's well known for their investments in private credit uh, and all private assets. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here today. I'm looking forward to a wide-ranging conversation. Let's get started with your early career. How did you get started uh, in private credit or, or what led you to the point where you are now? I guess, like many people, it's more a function of kind of good mentors and, and good experiences that, that triangulate. I, I've always loved investing. So from a young kid, it was always a, a passion. But you know, early in my career working in banking, I had some great VPs. And certainly when I was at Bain Capital, uh, the founder of Sankey was a, a good mentor. I think ultimately for me, what clicked was the complexity that debt investing brings. The concept that you you got to not just figure out the company and the growth trajectory, but you've got this documentation, you've got a deal dynamic, you've got a syndicate potential dynamic, an owner and a lender dynamic, just that multifaceted nature of the asset class. It's always fascinating. So it's, um, you know, I guess when I made the transition from banking, uh, you know, beginning bit of my career, uh, I was there in the dot-com bubble where, you know, dot-com hmm. companies were going bankrupt and software companies couldn't raise money other than through debt issuances. So started doing some pretty complex pipes and, and that kind of led me into to doing other types of private credit. So it's been really from the, the, the get-go um, and really based on the complexity and, and some of the early experiences. Very interesting. So you, you got started uh, with banking and dot-com uh, and then transitioned to, to credit within that same space. Is, did I understand that correctly? Yeah, exactly. And I, I would say that the dot-coms were going bust. And so you know, that was bringing in all tech companies and yet brilliant software and IT businesses that were desperate for capital. And that's where the credit markets really came to the rescue. And that's, that's really the bit that interested me most. <laughs> Very fascinating. Love to uh, circle back as, as this conversation continues to just understand how that uh, foundation uh, plays out. But maybe we'll start uh, by talking about the asset class in general um, and, and talk about private credit as a whole. You know, I guess fundamentally, why does private credit exist? Um, you know, I, I understand we'll get into some of the details, but uh, these companies pay a premium uh, to uh, to issue debt privately. Why why would they choose to do that? I think there are some misperceptions in the market about about private credit. And I guess the the two basic ones. One is that private credit's always existed. It's it's actually been the foundation of the credit markets. You know, way before the the liquid 
markets existed. Um, and I guess when you think about medium-sized companies, that's always been the place that they've accessed uh, for, for credit. Where we focus is on private equity lending, and this going back into the 70s and 80s, was a product that was provided by banks. So it was privately negotiated on the terms that, that banks agreed. So that's why we've got good documentation. It's why we've got a spread-based product because the banks obviously are lending on a, on a spread basis. And so they, they really were the people that put the product together. And then what happened over the last 20 years really is the banks moved from being in the storage business where they liked underwriting and holding this stuff to being in the moving business where they didn't want to hold it on their balance sheets anymore. They wanted to originate it and sell it on. Um, and what's been carved out is as that transition took place, lots of institutions like North Leaf and others you know, brought in institutional capital that started to do it direct, a little bit competing with banks, a little bit collaborating, but from an institutional investor standpoint and increasingly from a retail investor standpoint, you know, that's how people have started to get involved is, Firms like Northleaf have been doing it for a while, but started to bring the asset class to them. Uh, the second piece is just around the premiums. And you know, I, I would say that mid-market companies, and for that, I really mean companies with call it a hundred to a billion dollars of enterprise value, you know, they're generally not big enough to do public issuance. It's it's complex to do public bonds, it costs a fair amount. Uh, and they're, you know, you need an institutional size. Typically, you know, you need to be 50 or 75 million EBITDA or greater. And so most of the businesses that we focus on are kind of below that threshold in size. They like the fact that the capital that we bring or that the banks used to bring provides some degree of flexibility, but they appreciate that there's covenants protecting the lender. Uh, and they also understand that, you know, for the size of the business and the type of effort it takes to find and negotiate the transaction, you know, they're, they're going to pay a certain um, spread for that. I don't think they see it as a premium. I think they see that as a pretty attractive price relative to the equity returns that they can generate. Great. So the, so the, uh, it's interesting. So the, the banks formerly were the dominant player within this, within this space, uh, that changed, uh, 20 years ago. Was that change due to, to regulation? Was it changed due to banks, uh, no longer just wanting to be in the space because it became somewhat unattractive or, or what was the catalyst behind that? Yeah, great, great question. Um, it, you know, if you talk to bankers, they'd say they've always they always loved the asset class. It was stable, it was consistent, and it was highly cash generative. So everything that a, a bank balance sheet would look for. I think the two factors really, one was regulation. You know, in the U.S. prior to the global financial crisis, and particularly in Europe post the global financial crisis, regulators just didn't like big balance sheets. They didn't like the idea of having this consolidation of, of capital and, and, frankly, of corporate liquidity in a single source. Uh, and the second thing is, is investors. You know, banks are public companies. And when you look at the ROE that they can generate by using their balance sheet for fee income versus net income, you know, there's obviously been an increasing push. If the regulators want it smaller, then to use that more efficiently, you want to recycle that by you know, getting into products where you can generate more fee income versus net interest income. So a combination of investor demands, but certainly the regulatory-driven capital treatment of bank loans was a significant driver of, of some of the deleveraging and some of the institutional uh, build over the last really 15 to 20 years. Makes sense. Um, when you're looking at the space as a whole, as you've referenced to institutional uh, investors and, and firms like, uh, like Northleaf are increasingly uh, getting involved in the space, has the space itself grown in size or is it really just a shift away from the banks dominating it to being a little bit more democratized call it 
uh, with various institutions and now more of a retail uh, investor getting involved? The predominant trend has been just the growth of private markets as a whole. So when you see the growth of private equity uh, and obviously the growth of private credit, you know, there's just been a significant trend of capital, both driven by investor demand on the private equity side and corporate demand on the type of you know, financing that they're looking to raise. And that's caused, again, a significant increase in the asset base and the, um, and the size of the market. So really, I'd say driven mostly by the demand and the increasing focus on uh, private companies as opposed to, to public capital. Uh, but there's no doubt that uh, there's also been the swing factor that has helped private credit as well with this additional transition from bank-driven financing to more institutional-driven financing. So that's really accelerated private credit in the last 10 or 15 years where the, the growth rates in private credit have exceeded those of other private asset classes. But I would say that's, if anything, just more catch-up um, as you know, we've institutionalized the private credit space. Uh, whereas private equity and infrastructure has been, you know, institutionalized for, for quite a bit longer. Right. Um, and I know that we're, we're talking about private credit as a, uh, as a large asset class, but there's all sorts of different flavor of private credit. Uh, maybe we can transition to talk about what type of private credit that you're looking for. Uh, and then we can start to talk a little bit about how you approach that market. Uh, but maybe we'll start with uh, the types of private credit that you, that you look for. When you think about private credit, that can be, uh, I, I kind of think of it on a two, two by two basis. So you can think about uh, sort of riskier uh, type enterprises all the way from kind of venture type lending or very early growth stage where you're providing private lending or private credit into those businesses all the way to very mature and contractual based type lending like infrastructure. And, and obviously the pricing gets tighter as you go into the more contractual and mature based businesses and industries. Uh, and the second dimension would be performing to non-performing. And so you can provide loans into highly performing businesses. And then obviously as businesses get more distressed or as they get uh, impaired from either operational or balance sheet perspective, they can see higher cost forms of private capital. And so we're sort of squarely in the corporate lending, cash flow based, uh, but performing credit um, business. And so we don't venture into uh, in, you know, infrastructure end where they're, they're very tight spreads, uh, really long dated loans. What we're lending to are mid-sized companies with national or very, very strong regional positions against the cash flow of the business, which we look to have as very stable, consistent cash flow, uh, but always performing companies. Really, ultimately, we're looking to clip attractive coupons, generate good cash flow for investors, uh, and recover our principal. Great. Uh, and so let's start digging into what you look for uh, when you when you find these deals. Uh, what what characteristics of the company do you look for? What do you find attractive? Uh, and and uh, how do you determine uh, effectively what what deals you invest in? Yeah, and this is part of what's always fascinating. Was we were just discussing earlier, and I I always use the analogy of a Rubik's cube because it's sort of the best one that I can think of in terms of being kind of multifaceted and multidimensional. And so what we're looking for ultimately is we're digging into the industry and trying to find stability of industry uh, and really a competitive dynamic is one that we can underwrite that has that stability. A company ultimately for us, the strength comes in either having contractual cash flow in the sense of three to five year contracts like you'd see in software or IT or very sticky products and services that you might see in commercial or 
in you know healthcare type businesses where those are stable uh, business to business or business to consumer relationships on the product and services side. Uh, but uniquely for credit, we need to have good documentation. We need to have good structure because ultimately for us, what's critical is that when something goes wrong, we're able to protect our position in the capital structure uh, and recover our principal. And so really what we're looking for is that multifaceted, protective industry, stable business with predicted cash flow uh, and strong covenant package. And that for us is you know, why it's critical to make sure that we've got you know, deep teams doing lots of diligence over three to six weeks on each individual company to ensure that we know exactly what we're running against and ensure it's got the characteristics that we're looking for. And uh, so when you when you identify uh, firms like that, how do you how do you think about uh, pricing those deals? And, and how do you think about the different covenants that go into that documentation? Uh, I'm assuming it's, it's going to be company specific, but maybe some um, key characteristics that you're looking for uh, when you're considering each of those uh, uh, principles. Yeah, sure. And, and just to give you some examples, so we might do a first lien where we're you know pretty low levered to a company in yeah you know, the vet care space. We we love vet care. Uh, obviously, the, the trends behind veterinarian growth are very strong. The humanization of pets, the amount people are spending per pet, those trends are fantastic from an industry standpoint. Uh, and ultimately, you can build highly diversified portfolios of veterinarian clinics, which again helps diversify your your risk. And so for something like that, where it's first lean against a highly diversified national or even um, you know, global type business, you're, you're looking at the stability of the cash flow. Uh, and then fundamentally you're pricing the fact that you're first lean uh, in the company. Uh, and so for us, the combination of how deep we're lending, so the loan to value, uh, in the company is one key metric we look at. Typically, we're lending at around 35 to 55% loan value. So that would be sort of, you know, you'd have somewhere in the neighborhood of 50, 55 to 65% um, cushion sitting behind you in, in most circumstances. Uh, the second thing is your cash flow, because ultimately what we're lending against is cash flow. And so we look at it as how much debt we're putting on relative to the annual cash flow that the business can generate. And then back to the veterinarian care example, it comes down to the fundamental stability of the business, how diversified the risk is within the business, um, and how sticky that product or service truly is. Most of the loans that we make end up getting priced on a spread basis in the sort of 450 up to about 650 or 700. So you're talking about a yield of something in the neighborhood of 6 to, to maybe 9% uh, on an unlevered, on an unlevered basis. Excellent. And then the so so sounds like uh, businesses with predictable return, uh, recurring cash flow and stability um, are, are clearly important. I mean, I'm expecting that those characteristics are going to be important, not just to you, but to many of your competitors. And it would be a, a fairly competitive space. How do you how do you access those deals? I mean, it's not a public market. You can't just go uh, and uh, and trade with a, a counterparty. How do you how do you find these deals? Yeah, it's critical. And this is one of the key things that differentiates private markets from public markets. The, the sourcing component of private markets is a critical ingredient in success. Uh, and it's a critical ingredient that differentiates you know, both us from public, obviously, but also you know, managers from each other. Uh, and ultimately, for any private markets business, sourcing is the lifeblood that drives the ultimate quality of the portfolio that, that we're building. Um, and so for us, when we think about sourcing, it does start with relationship. 
it does start with you know the the for us private equity lending the relationships that we have with private equity funds uh, both in North America and in Western Europe uh, and Northeast got a pretty differentiated sourcing uh, capability which I'll I'll talk about in a minute um, but ultimately when you think about a transaction in the mid market if a private equity firm is bidding on something they might have a billion or two billion size fund they might have ten or twenty people in the firm as a whole. They can only make three, maybe four calls to finance uh, that particular transaction. And so what's critical is to have the relationship, have the historical transactional experience together uh, that you're the person they call. Because what they're looking for is a strong relationship they can trust, who they know that institution and they feel confident the institution understands how they think about value. They need to know that they can execute so that this is a, a counterparty that both has it flexibility of capital and the willingness and the capability to uh, execute alongside them. Uh, and also, you know, there's all there's time pressure. So making sure that people can get there within the time uh, that's allotted, which as I said, is typically three to six weeks to compile lots and lots of, uh, of work. And I, I often equate it to kind of producers. You know, producers get scripts and we get, you know, probably six or 700 different deals a year. And if you think about a producer in the movie industry, they, you know, you look at their desk and they've always had pictures of piles and piles of scripts. That's sort of what you want to be. You want to be the producer that everyone's happy to send their scripts to because they know as a, you know, as a, a financing party uh, and as you know as a safe pair of hands, that's going to be a successful uh, production. It's sort of the same in, in, in private lending. You want to be the source of capital that has the flexibility, has the executability, has the partnership that you're, you know, you're someone that they call on and you're a value, uh, an attractive source of capital for those transactions. And, and does that make the business um, more oligarchic or, or monopolistic than other businesses? It seems like that's an entrenched advantage that would be a self-reinforcing advantage because the more deals you do, uh, the more credibility you have, the more that, that counterparties would know that you're able to do these deals. Do, do, you, do you see that uh, in, in the space at all? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I do think that there is some of that. I, I don't think that the private credit market has matured to the point um, that, you know, if you think about venture, there, there typically are certain tiers of venture firms. And in a way, you know, there's a certain brand um, value that an entrepreneur gets by raising capital from certain VCs versus others. I don't think that private credit has quite gotten to that point. Uh, and that's obviously another private markets example. But you're right, in private credit, there's a certain benefit that comes from scale, that comes from relationships, and that comes from flexibility of capital. Uh, and as you build more of that, both transaction experience and um, and, and pools of, of capital within your funds, there is a certain amount of magnetism that you draw in terms of additional deal flow. Uh, and that does create great positive momentum. It's one of the things that we've been able to build on over the last five years uh, where we've increased our transaction volume, we've offered great flexibility to our counterparties. And most importantly, we have a relationship with the private equity firms that is differentiated from others. Because we also have the private equity group that's investing at the fund level, we are building a relationship with these institutions on multiple different levels. And we're leveraging that relationship, those insights, and really that transactional um, capability together to, to benefit from some of those, those characteristics you mentioned. 
Great. When, when you're, uh, to, to go maybe back to the due diligence process a, a little bit, you did talk about some of the characteristics that you're looking for uh, from companies, some of the uh, company examples. I'm curious about how you view management, um, both of the company itself and then any private equity uh, involvement. And how do, you, how do you factor that into both pricing the deal and perhaps some of the covenants as well? We always think about uh, business, it's a bit like um, you know, stripping back the layers. And we start by ripping the business back to its core. And what its core is, is its products, its services, and the cash flow that it can generate. And the layers of protection that you put on top of that as a lender are obviously things like your structure, making sure that you've got good terms that can protect and conserve that core value, which is ultimately the ca- stable cash flow generation that those products and services can drive. Then there's the quality of the management team. And certainly, you know, during the COVID experience, a strong management team that is able to quickly pivot the company from a revenue standpoint, quickly provide a more efficient cost structure and, and very efficiently preserve liquidity in the business has enormous value from a lender standpoint in terms of protecting our value. And then obviously there's the owner and there's the governance and the transparency that that ownership brings. Uh, and all of those layers have different value. You know, in general, when things go wrong in credit, and it is rare, but when they do go wrong, you do need to be prepared as a lender to take action. Uh, and that's where you do need to ultimately be comfortable with a situation where maybe values eroded to the point where the owner's not there anymore. You peel back that layer. Maybe something's right. happened with management team that's caused them to, to leave. And you need to have confidence that the core business and the structure you've put in place allows you to layer on new management, add a new governance structure and, and board of directors, and ultimately steer that business back into you know, a place where you can recover your full principal. And so that's why we think about it more of a structured layer where each layer matters, but ultimately it's the core business uh, that we're underwriting at the end of the day. Maybe I'll, I'll uh, change from quality of management and, and that uh, perspective to quality of, of your teammates. I know that you, you lead a, a fairly large team. First, how large is the team? And then second of all, what do you look for in, you know, call it newer uh, people to the industry or, or people coming up? What sort of qualities, skill sets are you looking for that you that would make somebody a good private credit investor? Yeah, so the team, first of all, uh, we've got 26 professionals across four offices. So Chicago, London, Toronto, and New York. So again, covering North America and Western Europe. And it is important to be local in the private market. So you do need to have teams on the ground for sourcing and, and diligence. Um, the second thing in terms of what we look for, you know, we pull teams from all, all sorts of different places, but they typically have either a financial or more of a management consultant type background. The essential characteristic that I always look for is that they love investing, that they love ripping apart companies down to the core and then building them back up again, fundamentally understanding what are the key drivers of growth and what are the key areas of risk. And to me, particularly within debt, that's the essential characteristic that you need. You need to have people that when they meet management teams, when they get information packs, and we're typically getting hundreds of pages of diligence on each individual company, consulting reports, financial reports, management projections, and we sit down with the management team and the owners, uh, sometimes on multiple uh, occasions, and they need to have a passion about really tearing apart the business to understand all of the nuts and bolts and make sure that ultimately when we're investing, we understand what are the fundamental drivers from a value creation standpoint and what are the fundamental areas of risk so we can assess those. 
Every business has risk. It's just a matter of pricing those risks or finding ways to mitigate uh, the risks in your diligence. So that's that's ultimately what we're looking for. I'm super proud of the, the team that we've built. Uh, the vast majority of them have experience investing and lending through cycles. Uh, and that's another thing that's important. It's just perspective. Because when you're doing lending, the vast majority of your situations work out. And so you need to have experience right. going through a cycle where things have gone wrong to understand just how important those protections are that you're putting in the documentation. Just how important it is that you negotiate for that extra term that provides that additional layer of protection for your investors. So those are some of the things that we, we look for in the team. Great. And you're, you referenced uh, both uh, North America and Western Europe, uh, where you have boots on the ground uh, and that you, you invest globally. I'm interested in uh, some of the differences that you find as you move from uh, either country to country or even, um, you know, perhaps even narrower than that uh, region to region. Um, you know, and, and maybe in two ways. One, do you find any sort of fundamental differences in businesses that, that you're able to access? And then two, there's a whole new legal regime, of course, that changes by the countries. Does that um, create any uh, obstacles or, or ways of viewing things differently as you move a, across the globe? Yeah, a complex question with multiple layers. I'll try to, to try to take them one, one at a time. But, you know, jump in if I've missed anything. Um, I think the I mean, I think the fundamental premise for us as a institutional investor is that we believe that we're better offering global products to our, our clients, and that provides a better uh, risk mitigation tool. And so, first of all, you know, we are we believe very strongly in the idea of having global teams and our funds being built on a global basis because the essence of that is diversification, is finding a broad set of deals so that you can bring in that diversification of risk exposures to ensure that in things like 2020 or other types of dislocation events, mm -hmm. uh, you have a resilient portfolio that's built of a collection of different types of uncorrelated risk. Uh, in terms of the, the different geographies, absolutely different countries have different um, industry mixes. You see that in Canada, which you know, candidly has quite a concentrated set of industry mixes. Uh, and obviously, they'll have a wide variety, but the vast majority of the companies that you will find in Canada will be in a narrow set of industries, whereas the U.S. or, or continental Europe, if you take it as a broader jurisdiction, you know, offer a, a certainly a, a wider uh, selection of different industries. And we do bring a very targeted approach to our industry diversification. Um, back to what I said about my origins in, in the dot-com era, I do believe there's certain companies that just don't make sense for private credit. And so we, we systematically avoid things like retail and restaurants and energy, um, travel, leisure, all those industries that are more cyclical, more consumer discretionary. Um, but back to your global question, I do think that the fundamental challenge in global is that you get multiple jurisdictions. Each jurisdiction provides different creditor protections and a different insolvency regime. And that's why it's important to be local. It's important to have teams that understand those local insolvency regimes. Doing a French safeguard process is totally different than doing a US Chapter 11 process. If you have a borrower that's traded sideways where you need to use a court-driven insolvency process. Uh, and that's obviously the very widest end of you know, the outcomes that you'd want to get to, right. but you need to be prepared and you need to understand how your document and your company would behave during yeah, in this specific insolvency regime that you might get 
in whatever country that that, that company is is based in. Uh, so, so your your role leading the team, uh, and you have this team in various jurisdictions. How do you think about diversification? Uh, what credits reside in what jurisdictions, uh, and and the importance of that geographical diversification? Well, there's a couple layers to it. First of all, there are certain jurisdictions that you need to be wary of. Doesn't mean that you don't lend there, but it does mean that the bar is higher from a company standpoint. And it's very difficult to embed kind of pricing premiums for certain jurisdictions because there are banks and institutions that are always you know, willing to lend in certain jurisdictions. So you know, the, the common phrase that you get if you come to Europe is, you know, you're better lending to a beer drinking country than a wine drinking country. Basic okay. premise, Southern Europe is a harder place to lend money to because their insolvency regime is slower. Uh, it is generally um, less uh, prescriptive, so harder to ensure certain outcomes or be certain of certain outcomes. Uh, and it tends to also be very regional within the country. Whereas the beer drinking countries, particularly if you take the UK, very similar to the US, single common legal system based on historical precedents and, and case law and very predicted out or well-predicted outcomes in terms of the insolvency. So that's the first thing is that there are you know, a bit like industries, we view our geographic exposures being very, very targeted. So we stick to Northern Europe and we stick to uh, to North America. The second thing is within certain jurisdictions, you know, there are certain uh, insolvency protections or directions that you'll know. So you know in Germany that there are certain um, director liabilities that exist. They create certain risks as lenders that you'll need to avoid or you'll need to mitigate. So just a knowledge of the regime as your company starts to trade sideways or starts to deteriorate means that you can think forward three or four steps to make sure that you're avoiding certain pitfalls or challenges that may exist in, in this particular jurisdiction. Um, on the top layer, once you've kind of applied that targeted geographic diversification because of the insolvency regimes and some of the challenges with transparency there, um, it is about building geographic um, mix. Now, typically, and, and you know, not surprisingly, I suppose, we are tend to be exposed the way private equity is. So the US is the largest and deepest private equity market in the world. The UK, um, the UK and Northern Europe would be the second largest. You know, actually, Southern Europe is still quite a small and reasonably nascent private equity market relative to Northern Europe and, and North America. So we tend to weight ourselves that way. We have no exposure to Southern Europe. We're very conscious of where we invest and how we invest in continental Europe, uh, and we're weighted much more so to North America and the UK. Makes sense. Uh, and then what about uh, sticking on portfolio construction? Uh, I know that there's a separate group uh, that, that assists with this process. Maybe talk a little bit about what they do and, and uh, broaden the portfolio construction conversation beyond just geography and think of business mix and industry and how you, how you think about that when constructing the overall portfolio. Yeah, and this may be an area that's that's new to many investors because many investors would expect coming from public fixed income or public equity that you have kind of this natural um, construct of having portfolio level and asset level um, reviews where you've got teams that are doing asset level diligence and then you've got a team looking at a portfolio level. That's actually reasonably rare in the private markets. It's one of the biggest frustrations that I've always had having been an investor in both public market and private market credit. You know, in the public market, you expect that. You expect due diligence at a company level, but ultimately there's a portfolio overlay 
And there's a risk framework that helps ensure that you've got diversification and you're you know, really focused on reducing correlations. Northleaf is extremely unique in having a dedicated team that does that. And it does come from my background, having seen the benefit and really borrowed from the best of liquid credit investing and private credit investing. Uh, and private credit investors tend to be myopically focused on diligence of the individual asset. We do that. We've got dedicated teams focused doing three to six weeks diligence, as we talked about earlier. But we also have a three-person team that wake up every day just focused on what they can do to ensure that they are reducing the risk and optimizing the outcome for investors at a fund level. And really, that comes from statistically and analytically measuring the risk that we're taking at a fund level, asset by asset, fund by fund, and ensuring that each quarter or each month, as we're making new investments, we're tilting that portfolio in the right way and we're managing that risk uh, for investors. Uh, and so, like I said, that's come from my background, come from you know, borrowing the best of public and private credit investing and really applying those practices into an ecosystem that you know, I think private markets are still maturing. And I think more and more people will layer that component in to portfolio construction. It's interesting. It strikes me that uh, to go back to the earlier part of the conversation about deal flow and, and how that's a structural embedded advantage, it strikes me that uh, this is a, this comes this portfolio construction um, comes out of deal flow because without having enough deals, you're not going to have enough options to to construct this well balanced portfolio that you've described. Um, you know, what, one of the other uh, pieces with private credit or credit in general, uh, but particularly private credit, as you mentioned, uh, most of the time these thing, the lending works out well, uh, and uh, and you're getting the the yield that you're expecting from these uh, corporations. So during those bull markets where things are working out well, how do you know how you're doing if you're doing a good job? Yeah, listen, this is this is one of the fundamental challenges that I think a lot of investors have as they approach the private markets. Um, because the markets have more difficulty discerning and aggregating risk within one manager and comparing across different managers. And it is why we are obsessively focused with our portfolio strategy analytics team of not just measuring both the quantitative and the qualitative risks at an asset level, but ultimately statistically analyzing those at a fund level. Because uh, it does mean that we can, through our proprietary composite risk index and measurement, ensure that within each fund, we are measuring whether the risk is going up and going down. And so each quarter, we take five factors for each individual company, and we continually measure how that risk is trending within each individual company. And because we see six or 700 different companies in each uh, given year, we're also measuring a good proportion of those. And so we're measuring how our companies are per performing relative to you know, what we're generally seeing in the market. So we actually have a very good and quantitative base of measuring risk where we can assess whether an individual borrower is first quartile or second quartile on a statistical basis. Now, clearly in the private markets, you can't invest that way. That's one basis sure. for triangulating and, and ultimately challenging and interrogating the diligence that's done at, a, at an asset level. But it is a way which that we can differentiate ourselves from the market. And I do think that over time, as the market matures, investors will increasingly demand this from their, LP, uh, from their GPs. They'll increasingly demand a discussion around how much risk you are taking for every unit of return that you're generating. And that's what you expect from public managers. And I think that's the expectation that we think will take place in the future and why we're building that into our process today, because I think it makes us better investors. And I think it makes us able to better be transparent to our 
uh, to our LPs on how their performance is trending and how much risk we're taking. That's great. Um, we uh, really appreciate the insights there, David. Um, we always conclude these conversations by getting uh, some recommendations from from the guests. So uh, I'll throw out a couple of topics. You you give me some some of your favorite recommendations. Uh, let's start with your favorite books. All right. Well, I hope you're going to share yours as well. I don't know whether this typically happens, but I feel like you know people will be interested sure. in what what Matt is reading. I'm currently reading a book called Being Mortal, um, and for me, it's 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 maybe a, a slightly cruelly ironic book to be reading you know, during a COVID pandemic. But you know, aging is a fundamental trend um, that people are thinking about how to invest against and how to manage, both from a personal and from a family and from a societal standpoint. And, and I, I just I found it to be a fascinating read on the process of aging, the institutionalization of aging, uh, and ultimately, um, you know, the medical industry playing off against the you know the personal, the human side of of aging. So uh, it's highly recommended. It's it's not always an easy read, particularly as you as you get older. Um, but it's really necessary to think about the future. Fair enough. Uh, well, I'll take your bait. I, I just finished um, a couple of days ago Adam Grant's uh, newest book uh, called Think Again. Uh, really challenges you to figure out how to um, struggle with your internal biases and and uh, and just take a fresh look at uh, things that you. That you ought to. Uh, so I found it quite enjoyable, and I, I like Adam Grant in general and, and most of his work. Um, we're uh, we're suffering through COVID uh, collectively as as a world, really. Um, what are you most looking forward to doing post COVID? It's funny. I, I wouldn't say there's a single thing. I'd say it's more of a concept. I'm I'm missing spontaneity. You know, in the in the workplace, right. I guess psychologists would call it casual collisions. I'm missing that creativity that comes from I think Steve Jobs referred to it as kind of a spontaneous meeting and a random discussion. And so that tends to be how the best ideas are generated. Frankly, the most exciting parts of your day are often those you know, casual collisions. And it's true for personal life as well. It's, it's hard to, on a whim, decide to do something now, whether it's go for a drink or go for dinner or, or take your family on a weekend away. And so that, that spontaneity is something that, that I'm missing quite a lot. So, and, and again, interested in, in your view, what, how do you view the post-COVID What's your uh, first thing you're going to do? I can't wait to get on a plane. <laughs> I, I have to tell you, uh, I've been missing travel a, a fair amount. We had a number of trips booked for uh, for last year that uh, we've we've rescheduled or not even rescheduled, but um, looked to reschedule. So I'm I'm really looking forward to to getting both both for business and for pleasure. Yeah. Um, uh, final question for you, uh, and maybe uh, maybe we'll pick up on the travel uh, theme. Uh, where are your favorite places to travel? I know that you're located in the UK, so you have uh, uh, easy access to Europe. Uh, but w- where are your favorite places to, to travel? Unfortunately, UK is not ideal for me in terms of my personal uh, favorite. Because for me, it's the mountains. I, any season, you know, if I can get to the mountains, I will. Certainly winter. I grew up in Canada. I grew up skiing. I just, I, I've always loved the air and the atmosphere, the combination of skiing hard on the mountain and then après ski or you know, dinner and, and movies with your family. So. Uh, this season was a total wipeout, obviously, and, and weren't able to get it at all. I have three young kids that are, you know, at a, at an age where getting on the mountain every hour they're on the mountain, they just norm, improving enormously. Uh, and so, certainly, that that would be one thing that I'd, I'd look forward to, to getting back to as soon as we can. Great. Well, David, thank you very much for your time and insights. I really appreciate it. 
yeah, thanks, man. I'll pick up, think again. I always love books on biases and anchoring and, and all those concepts. So I appreciate the recognition. My pleasure. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.